Hello, I'm Dr. Jerry Fishkin and welcome to my show today. This is going to be a really a unique show because uh, we're not in studio, as you can tell. We're in the study home of my guest today, David Bance and his wonderful wife, Olivia. I've known David for the past 17 years. We've become very close friends and confidants, actually, and we're also very good neighbors. I have watched David deal with at least five of, of his eight bouts of cancer. Today's show is about survival in the face of death, manifested by a positive attitude, wisdom, fortitude, but most of all, courage. This is what our show is about today. David has written a remarkable book. It's called Conquering Fear, a cancer survivor's uh, wisdom. The book is wisdom and almost a, a cookbook for how he has survived all of his cancers and his major recoveries. And this is a must read for anyone dealing with a devastating life challenge. So before I get any further, I'd like to introduce to you my dear friend, Mr. David Bance. Hi, Jerry. David, I can't thank you enough for volunteering. This is a long time coming, too. <laughs> we talked about this show over a year ago, but things in life, you know, sometimes don't always work out. But we got our crew up to uh, our home, to your home, rather. And uh, what we want to do is really have a relaxed and show, good show about you and how you've conquered not only your fear, but what has it taught you in the process? Um, that's going to take more than your show. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have plenty of time. Um, I think the best way for me to start is to explain how we ended up here. I, live in, I lived in San Diego for, since 1974 and uh, moved out from, from the East Coast to uh, never look back. Some people say that the people move out here and then move back east have only a two-digit IQ. <laughs> so, well, that's a little less so than it used to be. I fell in love with uh, Southern California and right. we moved out here and, and thrived. Uh, I have two children, both of them grown, one of them in LA and the other back in New York City. Uh, and I, he has more than, she has more than a three-digit IQ. Actually. I mean, more than a two-digit IQ. Yeah, we know. My, background is that I grew up in Schenectady, New York, way up in the snow belt, way up north. And uh, I ended up going to college in the south, and I ended up in the Navy after that. And that's how I found out about the West Coast and thrived during the four years I was in the Navy uh, and ended up getting into the brokerage industry, the finance services. Mm -hmm. And I worked for 32 years in that industry. I have a second marriage, my wife, Olivia who is my partner in all respects. We worked together for over, over 12 of my 30 years, mm -hmm. the latter part, and uh, uh, retired out here to this home in the, in, the, uh, in the northeast part of San Diego, as Jerry said. The part that I'm not telling you is the part that Jerry and I are gonna talk about, and that is uh, along the way, at age 42, I'm now 74, at age 42, uh, I was shocked to find out that the reason I was not running as fast on a tennis court as I used to is I ended up with uh, what I thought was walking pneumonia, but it turned out to be a huge chunk of cancer that had grown on my adrenal gland and 
kidney, right kidney, and also in my uh, uh, liver. And so I was in deep trouble. Three days later, I was on an operating table, and, uh, and that's where the adventure started. And as Jerry mentioned, uh, that kind of an event really changes the way you think. Uh, you don't have time at the moment to realize what's happening. You just say, where do I lie down? What do we do? And let's move forward. But then in the ensuing years, especially since my cancer kept coming back, as Jerry said, uh, the only thing worse than hearing you have cancer the first time is that you have cancer coming back. And so the elation of surviving the first bout of cancer is uh, amazing that you've survived. So there's something thrilling about that. But the second time around when you're told it's back and with the same kind of vengeance, that changes your approach and you begin to analyze what you're doing and why you're doing it and both mentally and also in terms of your relationship, everything else in your life uh, kind of gets rebalanced. And uh, that's why I ended up writing this book at age 70, early, early 70s, because people kept telling me when they'd hear about what I'd been through and some of the thoughts I had that I should write a book. So finally I took, took one of those friends seriously and sat down with a writer, mm -hmm. and over about three years, we ended up putting this book together. Let's talk a little bit about your your history and your family. I know you come from upstate New York. I come from right. the lower part of New York, the city, and uh, and I moved out here when I was 12 and a half. Um, but tell us about your family history, because I know you've told me about it over the years. It's in your book. But I want these people to know what it's like for you as you were alone in life, so early in, in your life as well. Well, in fact, that ties very closely together with how I faced down cancer time and again, uh, and how those things interplayed. My uh, parents were classic middle class. My father was um, an executive at, at the local YMCA in Schenectady. Right. Uh, my mother was uh, a housewife and and a good mom. And one of the few, they both had masters. They both went on and, and really used themselves mm -hmm. uh, pretty substantially compared to some uh, couples right. at that day and age. Mm -hmm. So they had that kind of curiosity in life. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, um, unfortunately, my mother had cancer, uterine cancer, uh, after my birth. And it wasn't, we weren't aware at all. Of course. Um, that this was happening until I was about age seven or eight, mm -hmm. and uh, it had really taken hold. And she ended up uh, uh, dying at my age 11, her age 44. Oh. So that was an early death for her and a mm -hmm. really tough time for a little kid. My brother was uh, seven years older than I. My sister's 13 years older than I, so I was obviously a, a version of a mistake. And uh, happily so, we all had a very great life when the five of us were together. Yeah. But I know that I knew that she was going through some really tough times, though I didn't know what they were. Mm -hmm. uh, and my father was working all day. So during that time, as she became more and more preoccupied and going down to New York City for cobalt treatments and so on, yeah. uh, 
I began to be somewhat of a latchkey kid. And then when she died at age, my age 11, my father was still having to go to work to support us. And so I ended up coming home from school. If I didn't have a sport after school, I'd be home as early as 3, 3.30. And I would uh, inevitably get in trouble. <laughs> What's that about idle hands, Jerry? That's it. And so it's the devil's I, workshop. Oh my gosh, I got into something. And there's a chapter uh, in the book that has to do with when my father realized I was going off the deep end and decided to hire a cleaning lady who really wasn't a cleaning lady. She really was to take care of me. But she cleaned the house to have an excuse to be in the house to try to control me. And she failed. She failed. Uh, I ended up firing her. You, you fired Were you an angry kid? <laughs> no, I wasn't an angry kid. I was just a really happy kid who mm -hmm. had a challenge and mm -hmm. I was able to execute with a number of cherry bombs right. and things like that. Oh, boy. Cherry bombs in a fireplace that still has ashes in it in a very clean living room can have a really deleterious effect on the attitude of the cleaning lady. I'll There's no doubt. Uh, and after about three of those circumstances, mm -hmm. She finally left an angry note, and that was probably the biggest paycheck she got to, from my father when he got home and got the note. And I was in serious trouble. But he learned, he did learn that that was not a good idea. He ended up getting married uh, at my age 13, and that was a true turning point. Uh -huh. uh, that lady, my second mother, uh, lived until she was 99, and she and I had a relationship that's Hard to explain, although I try to do that in the book to give the reader context. Sure. So, so you all understand what uh -huh. what changed, what what was the agent of change in uh, my response? Because here I was uh, in deep trouble with the first mom having done the best she could, and the handoff when my father remarried at my age 13. This lady had a real challenge, but mm -hmm. she was a very talented person in terms of dealing with people. And she saw uh, the interplay between my father and me, and she called me over, sat me down on the front step and said, David, I've got a favor I'd like to ask of you. Would you like to make these next few years the best years of your dad's life? Well, she was partnering. Mm -hmm. She was using a, an absolutely marvelous way to instead of lecturing me or saying you're making your father unhappy or any of that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, she just said, brought me along. You know, mm -hmm. my chi in the book, right. I talk about the concept of, of using uh, seeming weakness to be as strong as you could ever be. Right. She could use force, like when you are mad at somebody and you take a swing at them, you're using force. Right. And the other person blocks. Well. The concept of my chi, which is tai chi in language and in my, my thinking, mm -hmm. the concept is if you take a swing at me mm -hmm. orally, mm -hmm. you, you lash out at me, mm -hmm. instead of my fighting back at you, I accept your comment, your idea, mm -hmm. and lead you along into a conversation so that we can work things out. That's what she was doing. She could see conflict. Mm -hmm. She could have stepped in like you see in so many family dynamics and tried to stop the quote fight or whatever right. it was. Mm -hmm. But instead what she did was pull me aside, talked with me gently, mm -hmm. encouraged me to deal directly with my father, not her, mm -hmm. and to, for the good of 
my father, not dealing with her and me yet, she got us both into a partnership where every time something would start to flare up, I'd look at her and she'd look at me and we'd go, okay, let's do the right thing. And we'd find a way for the three of us to work together. It, it, it was really insightful. On and her. I noticed that you use that concept of chi when you're talking about how you face your cancer. Spirit. As well, mm -hmm. that you became a partner with your cancer. It didn't become the enemy, it became something that you could deal with. If you are fighting something, you're denying it. Absolutely. If you accept something, you can work with it. So if I accept that I have cancer, rather than deny, mm -hmm. and then I try to accommodate and work with it and use it, oddly enough, as a way for me to, 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 do, to achieve my own objectives. One of your favorite affirmations uh, comes from Mark Twain, and it's one that I hadn't heard before. Do that thing that you fear the most, and the death of that fear is certain. I want you to tell our audience what you, what you mean by that. Well, uh, bring it down to a daily experience. If there's something that you're really afraid of, uh, for instance, a phone call. If you're a person that makes a lot of phone calls and has to confront clients or has to make a sale, whatever it is, the reason you're making a call that's difficult, or it could be your mother-in-law, whatever it might be that, you, that could upset you and upset the person on the other end. The thing that you need to do is not think about it till tomorrow and then put it off again and then put it off till Monday. Mm -hmm. The thing you need to do is before you think it through any more than to put some ideas down on paper so you keep your point, pick up the phone and start talking. Just start talking. What's the worst thing? You can get upset with each other and you'll have to wait and call back in an hour or so. Most likely what you'll do is you'll confront the situation and you'll find out it's nowhere near as bad as you thought it was going to be. And a lot of times, there are, we're on a hill here and we look out over people's homes and their trees. And we have a, a view of the mountains. And as people's trees grow over the years, I've been here 18 years, so our trees have doubled and tripled. So. I had to make a call to a neighbor below me and I was a little concerned that that neighbor was going to be upset with me when I asked if they would mind if I contributed some money for them to, uh, for me to work with them to cut their trees in a way that I'd maintain my view. Couldn't have been nicer. And here all that fear was in me. It was bundled up in me. So do that thing you fear the most and the death of that fear is certain. That fear died in a moment and in fact turned into joy for both of us because he was about to have his trees trimmed anyway. So it worked out that I ended up paying for his trees. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I want you to tell us a little bit about your father and okay. your relationship with your dad okay. and, his, and, and his passing as well. My dad, uh, he was uh, somewhat of an authoritarian and he was a very gentle person, but he also was the typical father of the 1940s and 50s. Uh, so he was somewhat authoritarian in the way he managed his life. Yeah. I learned a lot of wonderful things from him, but I also learned a lot of things that I didn't want to do later on. So we, we had a typical push-pull, um, and he had already raised my brother seven years before me, so he had some tricks up his sleeve, mm -hmm. worked pretty well. Mm -hmm. But the unfortunate thing was that once he was very, I won't say puritanical, but he was very strict with himself, and he was very self 
conscious about what others thought of him in the community. Sure. Because he worked for the YMCA, so he was always fundraising, mm -hmm. and he wanted to have his best appearance and so on. Sure. So he was, he, that self-consciousness caused him to uh, be very restrictive of himself. Mm -hmm. When my mother died, he was on his own. Then when he married this woman uh, from Ohio, whom he'd known from Ohio State when he had gone to school, college, uh, she was very much of a kind, uh, socialite person, you know, took normal amount of drinks at cocktail parties and that sort of thing. This changed my father's life to become very social and less self-conscious mm -hmm. and to, to build that out. So as, as my mother said to me, this became from age 13 to 16 for me became the best years of his life and the best years of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think Casey's, my, my stepmother's also, that was a thrilling three years. And uh, when he died, how old were you? 16. So you lost your mother when you were 11. Right. Then your dad passes away at age 16. Mm -hmm. And then you're left with a stepmother? Now with my stepmother only. Only. And I'm uh, the summer between my junior and senior years. And my mother wanted to go back to where she was from. Right. But, and here's the Mai Chi that we'll probably talk about in a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, she, instead of saying, we're moving back south, we're moving back south, I'm taking you out of high school, you'll finish your last year uh, down there. She instead sat down with me and said, look, I know you have a last year, and I know this, is, this would be really tough for you, so I'm going to stay here, and we're going to let you have your senior year here, mm -hmm. and however, after that, uh, I intend to move back south, and we'll see what college you choose. The assumed clothes. You're going to college. Yeah. <laughs> that was built into that. Sure it was. And, and, and so I, I, that's the way our, our year went. The Mai Chi, I was thrilled that she would do that for me. Mm -hmm. So I was very open when she, we started talking about colleges. Uh, I wanted, because I was a crazy skier, I wanted to go to University of Vermont and was accepted there. But she also took me on a college tour, which was perfect because I didn't want to go. I knew where I wanted to go. You know, I was going to go to the University of Vermont. But she said, let's go down south and take a look at some of the other schools you don't know anything about. And we'll just have a good trip anyway. So I thought that was fine. I went down there. I fell in love with a school called Wake Forest University. Right. At the time, Wake Forest College. College, right. And uh, ended up going there because she, instead of telling me what I was going to do, she led me. She led me into the conversation right. and let me decide. But she certainly had a forceful word, mm -hmm. you know in terms of those kinds of uh, decisions that I had to make. But uh, that, that ended up that I, that was a new hometown for me. I never went back to Schenectady for decades. I had no need to, no reason to. Right. So I ended up coming home to, to uh, her, her other hometown. And that was quite a transition, but you know, she was my world at that point. Right. We were in love with each other right. as, as mother and son, and, and uh, it was all cooperation. All because she managed the way our communication went and gave me an opportunity right. uh, to look at something I wasn't considering at all, and then let me make the decision. I actually felt that I had the decision mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. choose Wake over, over Vermont. Right. Now, I know your, your sister Peg is still 
86. Here, 86 and kicking, and she ran a company, and she was a very... Uh, she had 35 employees. It was an educational materials company. Right, right? a very busy woman. She, she also had a, a major stroke that... She did. ...that left her uh, somewhat compromised, but in the face of that, she has made remarkable recovery and strides mm -hmm. yeah. uh, to this day. And your brother, just to wrap it up, wrap up the family part. Yeah, and that, that's part of what the built, book is built on, another, another one of those things that happens when we are hit with an amazing trauma of some sort. It's not just cancer that can throw us off course. Uh, my brother was a very successful advertising executive back in the days, mm -hmm. you know, that they write about and so on. Yeah, sure. And he literally was on Madison Avenue and he, he was one of the first people uh, to create People Magazine. Mm -hmm. He did the advertising for People Magazine, the first issue. Uh, but uh, he also, in that process, came out of Cornell and went into the business of advertising and caught, got caught up with the three and four martini lunches. Right. And that became uh, his, his end. And, 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 and what was that? He, he uh, uh, obviously was drinking to excess, uh -huh. alcoholism. Right. And uh, he was quite functional anyway. Mm -hmm. But he ended up losing wives and jobs. Uh -huh. He ended up out in uh, San Francisco, and it uh, seems like an idyllic uh, experience on his part, but it was actually excruciating. Uh, and, you know, when, when you go through something like that, uh, he was exhausted one day after a bender of some number of days yeah. and nights and fell down the uh, rock steps of the front of his house and was dead in three days from major, a major uh, Brain injury. Trauma. injury. Yeah. And, and how old was he? He was 53, I think. Uh -huh. Yeah. So uh, I was, it was right before I contracted, right after I contracted cancer. And uh, the first time. Yeah, yeah, the first time when I was 42. And so, uh, you know, my sister were, and I were there making the decision to, mm -hmm pull the, at the advice of the doctors to pull the plug on my brother. It's an amazing thing to get hit with cancer and then all of a sudden lose your brother as well. So we, I, I had those two events with my parents. I had these two events um, pretty close together in time. Uh -huh. But at some point I felt oddly prepared because of my losses and dealing with my losses with my parents. Mm -hmm. um, there's a saying, whatever is, is right. It comes from, uh, right. from a, a, a poem called An Essay on Man mm -hmm. that was written in 1734. And it works to this day because it, it, it's kind of like when, a, when our younger kids say, uh, it's all good, mm -hmm. it's all good, you know, no worries, we'll, we'll get through it. And that's really what this guy is saying in, in this very long poem. He's saying, whatever it is is right, it's meant to be, and just accept it, be patient. And when he says be patient, he means be patient your entire life. Your entire life. He's not talking about right. till the bus comes. Uh, and that's an amazing way to live. It's a, very, it's a very big change in your perspective of what you're trying to do with yourself. Right. You know, Dave, 
What do you mean when you say, so actually along with what you're saying now, what, what do you um, mean when you say look for the good in life? What, is that, what does that mean for you? Because that goes along with, with that. It does, it does. Um, sometimes when you fall, you are face to face with your treasure. You're looking at it and you don't even know it. And so sometimes when something terrible happens, mm -hmm having patience with yourself, having patience with what's happening right. and those around you right. can allow you to find the good. Give yourself time to settle and figure out what you're doing and find the best of what you are now involved in. Dave, I am sure we have viewers that are gonna watch this show forever because we're, in, we're universal, we go everywhere. Uh, and there will be people that are facing a particular struggle or a life challenge. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to them about look for the good in life? Well, you say look, take every minute and every day and have gratitude. Is that part of what this sure means? Sure is. Because I big think the term gratitude is Well, it's is very hard to find thing. gratitude when you've lost your father. It's very hard to find gratitude when you've lost your parents. I remember when my parents died, they died 10 weeks apart and that was, Really tough. Yeah. I was really angry at God for a long time. I think that uh, that is a huge step forward for anyone who can find at the worst time in their lives right. the ability to be grateful for what they still have. Right. You know, I studied under Viktor Frankl who wrote the book A Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl said that without meaning and purpose this whole <laughs> experience in life becomes empty and lost. And I really think that that's, that's a big part of what you're we have to find meaning and purpose every day, in spite of, uh, you know, whatever that struggle was that, we, that we're dealing with. One of the things I came to realize in the processes of, of having cancer come back, losing parents, losing a brother, was that when it may seem we don't have a choice, we actually do. We actually do have a choice. Yeah, and, and I think even Nietzsche said it's the choice of how we confront the situation, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And 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 and, and how, how we how we handle it, and what we allow or don't allow it to do to us. An event occurs. Yes. A response. Yeah. Is given by you or right. whoever we're talking right. about, and that ends up with an outcome. Yeah. Look around you. Everyone you see shares a deep and terrible secret that no one ever talks about. It is, in fact, one of the best kept secrets of all time, as universal and natural as the air we breathe, and just as pervasive. No one is immune to it. Look inside yourself. We listen to it instinctively, hold it closely, impetuously, and follow it without question every moment of our lives. The secret is our inner voice. The self-talk, the primal and silent internal communication that form alongside our psyche, feeding us constant messages that control our behavior. We hear it, but we can never see or feel or detect it in any other way. If you'd like to learn more about the relationship of early life abuse, trauma, neglect, violence, and its relationship to addiction, Please pick up a copy of my new book, The Science of Shame and Its Treatment, available at the bookstore or online. Thank you very much.
you use the formula, you use a formula mm -hmm. uh, to describe, to, to, to right. improve outcomes of negative experiences in our lives. E plus R equals O. And we're going to show that on the screen. Okay, good. My guys will have that, that up there. What does it mean? What does that mean specifically? Well, and we want to tell our folks because okay. you have told me about it. If, if you think of a, a secretary who's coming into the office every morning, she's supposed to be there at 10 and 9, and she consistently ends up arriving at 10 after 9. And uh, every time when her boss looks at her with the evil eye, she says, It was the traffic. I can't believe the traffic. Well, how many times does the boss have to accept that idea uh, patiently? How many times can she pull that off? Not very often, right? We won't let her get away with that kind of situation. Therefore, it, there's the event of the traffic. There's the outcome of her being late. Shouldn't she at some point help that R out and change the, the response that she's given to make sure that she is ending up at 9 o'clock, which is the most important thing, not when she leaves, and not certainly not being 10 minutes late, and everybody else has to expect that. The most valuable thing we have is our time. Exactly. And if we have somebody in the office who's consistently taking that time away from us, it can be very irritating and even harmful in a way to relationships as well as, who knows, our clients or whatever our relationship is with people that are dealing with our organization. E plus R equals O is a, a, it's a very simple way for me to remember that and to see people who don't operate on that basis and to be very happy with getting to know and being with people who actually understand that formula intuitively. So the E is is the event, the triggering event. That's right, like the traffic. Right. R I is... mean, the, the, sorry, it's not the traffic, the, the event. The event. Yeah, the event is the traffic. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So E plus R, R is the... Response re of the person. Your reaction or response. Right. And then O is the outcome. At the outcome. Yep. You see, so you can change, you can't change the triggering or precipitating event, right? Right, that's it. But you can change your response. Yes. And that modifies the outcome. Exactly. I love that. <laughs> because it goes along with my belief that the only two things we have in life are number one, time, and number two, energy. Mm -hmm. And when we expend them in useless and terrible and exhausting ways, uh, we, you know, we're done. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like driving down the road with one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake. You're burning things up. Yeah. You're not going anywhere. And you're burning those things up of other people around you as well as right. yourself. So taking your foot off the brake is kind of like living courageously, <laughs> which goes along with, because I want to keep our, our readers to understand what, how creative you are, what you, you, you uh, talk about here in the book. But I use the term self-talk in my book to talk about the toxic and negative things that we say about ourselves, which is typically learned from others. We right. inherit it from others. But, but you use the term self-talk, and, and you believe that it's changed your life for the better. No but it's not in a toxic way. And I want to get into a little, because you and I have talked about that over the years. Yeah. But again, in this setting, in this uh, format, uh, people, I really want people to know what you mean by positive self-talk. Sure. It, I'm not talking about it in the professional way that you would be. No, of course not. Uh, what I'm talking about is literally the communication that I have with myself. And, and, and for our viewers that are struggling, 
the communication that they have with themselves. Absolutely. And that, let's take it to the next level then. Okay, let's say that uh, we're at a really nice dinner and I'm trying to be, you know, blend in with the table as best I possibly can. Right. And we're at a nice restaurant and I drop a fork, accidentally, obviously. And my brain, as I bend down to get the fork and hand it to the waitress and ask for a new one, is saying, you stupid idiot, you clumsy fool. That's me talking to myself. That's toxic self-talk, right? And so what I learned to do when I realized how often I was doing that to myself, mm -hmm. I was turning my, I was my own worst enemy in little teeny small parts of the life, right from when you get up and you do something stupid in the bathroom and you start blaming yourself. Then you start thinking about a meeting that you have coming up mm -hmm. and you haven't written enough of the paperwork to be able to present at the meeting. Right. All those things can just collapse on you very quickly without you even realizing it and you haven't even talked with anybody yet. And you're already assuming the worst. You play the whole thing out in your head. Yeah. So you also have the ability with your self-talk to say, you're good at recovery. You'll make a joke of it when your head's back above the table. You've, you've got to give yourself a little room. Permission. Be patient with yourself. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so going back to the Canfield's equation, E plus R equals O, the triggering event, the response, if your self-talk is negative, right? Yep. You're just taking yourself further down. You just take down further down the rabbit hole in that old expression when you're in a hole, stop digging. Yep. Yeah, we should stop digging. Be aware of what we're doing, and that will That's help change word. the. Oh, That's a key aw word. awareness. Yeah, trying to trying to hear yourself. Okay. Okay. You can't control your breathing. Right. You can only hold your breath for a certain amount of time. Right. But you can manage your breathing. Mm -hmm. You can you can hold your breath for a minute and a half while you swim the length of the pool and back. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Why can't you? If, if people say. I can't control what I think. Come on, what is this self-talk right. stuff? My answer is you don't control your, your, your thinking. Right. What you do is you manage your thinking. Absolutely. There's an old, uh, years ago, when I was taking one of my early learning classes in the, in the psychology of learning, and there was an example of two guys are on a boat, and they both fall off the boat, but they see a little island or atoll not very far away. So the one guy says to himself, yeah, I, I can make that. It may take me a little time, but I can make the atoll. The other guy's saying, and he's flailing around and he's, and he's not breathing and he's taking in more water than oxygen. And he's saying, there's no way in hell I can ever make that on my stomach, on my back. I'm gonna, I can't make that atoll. Well, what happens to him? E plus sure. R equals O. The outcome there is not good. The, experience or the event mm -hmm. that triggers a response if that response is plus the outcome is survival it's in every case you have a choice you can talk with yourself and begin to understand that it feels silly at first oh i know but it becomes a habit just because like self -talk talking is, negatively becomes that's a right. habit self-talk is not really thinking it's, it's an affirmation kind of thing almost. It, it's informing yourself, I can do this. Yep. This is who I am. Yep. Yeah. Well, along with that, and this I felt as I was going through my stuff, you know, preparing for this last night, which I felt was a major concept. Dave, you used the term reset. What a, an important term. 
to quickly recover your happiness or at least your equilibrium when you get upset about something or literally anything. Right. Tell our viewers what you mean by reset. We have so many events going on in our lives. Uh, there's bound to be some times when we, when something doesn't go the way we want it to. It may be a very serious thing, such as a relative dying or something like that, which we've talked about, but it can also be a very small thing. What comes from self-talk is the idea of being able to change direction, to seeing that you have a broader array of choices to make about what you do next than you think you do. If a, if a kayaker, a pro kayaker, is out going down one of those courses in the Olympics, it's amazing to watch those guys when they make a mistake and they flip over, they're back up. You don't even know that they went under. So you, wait a sec, didn't he go under for a second? They flip themselves back up so fast with that paddle and they're back on the course. That's because they did not let themselves get discouraged. What they did was they reset themselves and reset the course. Everything happened just automatically because they've practiced it so many times. We have that opportunity in our lives. We can figure out a way when we're doing our self-talk to have something go wrong and immediately flip our mental paddle and get ourselves back up and in line and performing the way we wanted to in the first place. That's the concept. It's a very, it's not a con None of this is very difficult. So it's what, just that we don't do it. Right, we don't do it. We, and we take things for granted because we don't have faith in the outcome. Mm -hmm. We don't have faith in the fact that we can be successful uh, by changing and tweaking certain things. As I was reading in your book last night, you, and, you were talking to Olivia in the book uh, and with another bout of cancer. And this whole thing about reset is, oh darn, it's back again. Uh, and you decided, you and Olivia decided, how are you going to look at it, right? right? right. And not be defeated by it. There's, there's, it gives you the opportunity, the concept of a reset, is it gives you the opportunity to start over again. To not let the event that puts you off course... Define you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not but, let it define you, no. or define the time and energy that you will spend dealing with the toxicity versus getting the treatment and doing the proactive right. things that right. you need. Yeah. Wow. Avoiding self-defeating. It doesn't, it doesn't get better than that. And along with that, because I want to get the linearity of your, of your concepts here, what do you mean when you say, quote, look for the good in life? Because that, it goes right along with what we're talking about here. Yeah. Not taking a, that negative approach, not letting the negativity and things that physically may be out of your range of convenience to control Look for the good in life. That goes back to that whatever is, is right. If you, patience throughout your life, not patience waiting for the bus, right. but patience that's almost inconceivable for most of us in this high-tech world that we're in now. Right. We have to be able to be patient through a longer period of time than we're used to. Correct. Very few people play chess, play checkers now. I know. Very few people. Think of the number of people you know in your experience and how many of them play chess or checkers or some strategic game as, as a, a part of the things that they do with themselves. Yeah, I know. My wife and I happen? play cards at night and we're like kids. We yeah. just have so much fun. But that you causes know? you to think not just the next step. That causes you to right. think one, two, three moves ahead. Absolutely. And 
what that is, that's an amazing impact when you do that. That's what uh, the author is asking us to do. He's saying, I don't want you to have just a patience for the next half hour, the next hour, the next day. You should have patience with your entire life because it's going to unfold in front of you. And there's so many things you have no idea what they're going to be. Right. As you said, this is not a defining moment. It may seem like a defining moment, but we don't know what our future holds. No, we don't. And sometimes we we barely know what our present holds Whatever for us because is, we're too busy right. being distracted by so many things, cell phones, uh, whatever it is that distracts us, you know? Yeah, if you have, if you think of the number of moves you will make mm -hmm. in your life, how can one be so defining that you can't buy having other moves after the first one has occurred, making everything right again. It may right. be on a different course than you thought. Absolutely. Look for whatever the good is. It may not be exactly what you thought was good at the time that the first event occurred, but it's still, you can make it good. Right. And my parents died, but I learned so much from that terrible experience right. that it actually saved my life later on in life because I had the response mechanisms and the understanding to be able to deal with ridiculous things like strokes and cancer uh, and come out of them okay. Addiction is the greatest public health crisis of our time and the number one killer of young people in America today. At Beginnings Treatment Centers, we offer safe, modern, effective treatment for substance abuse and addiction. Minutes from the beach in beautiful Orange County, California, Beginnings offers comfortable surroundings, private chefs, and a dedicated clinical staff. Beginnings makes recovery possible for you and for your loved ones. Don't wait until it's too late. Call 800-387-6907 right now for a free confidential assessment. So Dave, I want to discuss your relationship with your wife, Olivia, um, your wife of 21 years, who you lovingly refer to as your health advocate. Right. Uh, uh, tell us what you mean uh, by health advocate and how has she helped you reset your emotional uh, uh, balance uh, and your equilibrium? Well, that term ab actually came in terms of Olivia and me when UCSD had uh, their cancer care magazine with the Moore's Cancer Center. Right. And I, Olivia and I were in the, one of the issues a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, at the end of the article, they talked about her and her participation in my experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and they referred to her as my fierce advocate. And so we've always had a little joke about that. Uh -huh. But the facts are that she has been a partner in this process. One of my chapters is about partners. And uh, it's amazing. We worked in our financial services industry right. uh, as partners, and that carried right on over to, uh, challenge, to the challenges we met consistently with these health issues. Dave, when someone has a, 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 a really bad diagnosis, and you've had eight of them, and, I, and I'm certain uh, that there's a deep sense of isolation and loneliness when that happens, how has Olivia been there for you to help bridge that void, that, if you will, mm -hmm. and, and, and help you along the road of recovery each time? And what, and what effect has it had on her? Because a lot of folks out there who may not have a caregiver uh, with them, and what does it mean? Well, because that's the importance here. What does it mean? It, and how important is it to have sure. a health advocate on your side? In in deciding to write the book, yeah. one of the key things was 
that uh, people did ask Olivia how she was managing through this process. And they saw us, closer friends as, as uh, mm -hmm. you and, and Kathy, sure. saw us in the way that we were maneuvering. Mm -hmm. And I actually asked Olivia to write a chapter. So she's an entire chapter in the book mm -hmm. uh, about her experiences and how she experienced just as much as the cancer patient does sometimes, the person who is the partner in the process, mm -hmm. the caregiver, mm -hmm. can be uh, as lonely as can be. And actually, I, I use the analogy of one person driving the car, the other person the passenger. Right. Guess who's the passenger? You. The caregiver. No, the caregiver, <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm the guy with the cancer. I know how I feel. I know I'm gonna do okay. I, I can you know babble with the doctor and things like that. Olivia has to watch all this going on, and you can feel powerless as the caregiver. You know, you can. Right. You, what am I? And, and what happens if he dies? What's my life going to be like? Right. Who's you know? So what's more important than the importance of now? Well, yeah. <laughs> the, the 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 fact is that the caregiver aspect um, is is so powerful can bring you a lot closer mm -hmm. uh, if you're a couple. Mm -hmm. uh, but also the ability of the caregiver to understand uh, how to maneuver through the incredible, uh, incredibly confusing uh, medical community. Right. Whether it's dealing with doctors or it's dealing with forms or it's dealing with trying to get from one, on, one hospital to the other because the other hospital has better treatment mm -hmm. for your kind of cancer. Uh, Olivia you, used her position with me in such a powerful way because mm -hmm. she allowed me to be the patient mm -hmm. and to have the emotions mm -hmm. and not deal with a lot of the paperwork and the frustration right. of managing a, a, a connection with, the, with the, the medical community. She handled all of that. That's wonderful. Not everybody can do that. Mm -hmm. And by giving me the window to simply experience my, my problems and, and challenges and turn them into uh, a positive result over time, she gave me a, a huge uh, privilege to, to not have to deal with that part of the medical experience. So it's best not to go through a challenging life affirming or life changing situation alone. It's always good to have somebody on your team. Partners. Yeah. On your team to be with you. Okay, Dave, we've covered so much. Uh, before we get to the book, as I said, we want to talk about the book last because we're, you know, I, I really wanted my audience, my viewers to, to really get to know you. Okay, thank you. Is there, is there something you want to say before we get to the book? And we're going to kind of focus our time and energy on that. But uh, do you have a last thing to say about what, what we're talking about now? One, you know, one major piece that, that would benefit our viewers today that are struggling with a life-affirming situation or mm -hmm. issue or challenge. Uh, I, I actually wrote it down just so that I wouldn't get it wrong. Well, then don't get it wrong. Go ahead. <laughs> this is uh, your spotlight. Live your life with a commitment and a vitality, whether you have a long life or cancer prevails. Each morning, commit your life, to live your life uh, as you wish, on purpose, and with grace, and also with thanks, let alone 
Be patient with yourself as the day goes by. That's beautiful. Okay, so now comes the big moment. Again, I want to talk about this incredible book, Conquering Fear, Dave's Diary of Survival. Dave, can you give us a snapshot? I know, how do you take 200 plus pages and, and stick it into a snapshot, but give us a snapshot description of what Conquering Fear is all about. Uh, it's my, it's not a linear presentation of what my life was. It's not what I did this summer. Uh, basically what it's doing is picking out certain things that I learned along the way and building those together so that through about 20 chapters or whatever it is, uh, you'll be able to have a toolkit in effect for ways that right. you can improve each moment of your life and build that into a process that you can use over and over again using self-talk and using the whole concept of of commit, living with a commitment. Living free. Living free is a way to think of it, yeah. You want, you want, you, you know, there's this paradox in life. The more responsibility we take for ourselves, mm -hmm. the more freedom we create. That's beautiful. So what motivated you to write uh, Conquering Fear in the first place? Well, I, as, We've talked about it. I learned about concepts like self-talk and and reset mm -hmm. in your in your neck of the woods. As I began to understand what I was doing for myself, and as I put those thoughts together and talked with others, uh, both in the cancer world and also out, mm -hmm. and I also applied some of these concepts to my work. Believe it or not, as I mentioned, my chi is a way that I learned to communicate with clients. Right, the whole concept of of, of learning how to talk with people in a different way that doesn't involve confrontation, but still is moving toward concrete goals that you want to achieve by, by dealing with people or dealing with that person. Right. Those became invaluable to me to so, continue the conversation using well, my chief. Well, absolutely. So what will the reader come away with after reading your book, Conquering Fear? What do you think they're going to have? Uh, you said it's a toolkit. Inevitably, well, inevitably, they're going to end up with more uh, conference, uh, uh, confidence. Right. They're going to have a, a reaction, uh, like I said, adapt and accept. Because if you adapt to the consequences you've suddenly, that have come upon you or you come upon them, and you accept them and you work with them, you're, you're already moving ahead rather than rejecting and saying, I, no, I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm not going to deal with it. Say you're a woman and you, you uh, have touched yourself and found out that right. you, you have uh, a nodule. You can say, you know what, that's just, that, that, that's just, I'm not going to worry about that. I'll just go on with my day. Say that you find that you have a, a hole in your tooth. A cavity. A cavity, exactly. What can you do? Well, you have a choice. You can either say, that's a cavity. I better go see the dentist. Or you can say, oh my God. That's going to be so painful. I'm not going to do that this week. I'll put it out in the calendar somewhere. Right. Right. You're not dealing with it. No. In effect, you're de denying it. and It's only going to get worse. That's right. Yeah. So, so we have to deal with it at the time. That's right. David, I, I, I have to tell you, this book and, and every piece of it is so inspiring. It's, I, I can't say enough about this. 
and I and I, uh, I I have been thrilled to, you know, not only know you as a a close friend, but someone who I respect and have a lot of admiration and love for. Thank it's you. been a it's been a great friendship. We've both grown from from knowing each other, but but more importantly, what you have to give to the universe and thank God for today and uh, for time in all eternity, people can listen to your story and know that there is hope after diagnosis. That's true. Because we don't let the diagnosis terminate us. Jerry, I just wait to say one more thing. Go ahead. We don't know how, much, how long we have to live. We assume that. You know, you and I sit here and we don't really sit there calculating. We're going to be around for 20 years so we can do this, we yeah. can do that. Or we're going to be around for two days. We're going to be doing this and doing that. So the concept of 86,400 seconds mm -hmm. are in a day. Right. All we can do is, we don't have to do something spectacular, but right. do something with commitment. Right. And do something that means something to you and others around you. Right. And that 86,400 seconds are going to be so powerful, even if you are not here tomorrow. Absolutely, and, and you know, as most of my viewers and my readers know about me, it, it, it's not so much the time in life, but how you fill it up and yeah. how much meaning and purpose you have. Mm -hmm. Some people fritter their time away. They, they, they don't care about time. Time becomes irrelevant. Oh, I'm just killing time. Versus living each moment uh, with, with valor, with gusto, with integrity and with hope. I think those are really sure. key factors in how we survive any life-challenging situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, along with that, our guests all get one of our Good Fish production mugs. <laughs> but in your case, I'm so pleased to give you and Olivia. Oh, we got it. So, you, uh, <laughs> so now you each have uh, a good fish production mug. We won't be fighting over it. And you will not be fighting over the mug. Uh, but, but more importantly, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. I love you. Thank I you. I wish you pleasure so much good life. Get a copy of this most incredible book. Where, they get, where can they buy, find it? Where can sure. they buy it? Amazon, Lulu, that's who published it. At, right. Uh, so Lulu Publishers. If you go into either of those sites and just put my name in, or you put the name of the book, you'll mm -hmm. find you'll find uh, direct access to be able to buy it. Amazon.com. That's the easy way. Yeah, Amazon.com. This book is a must-read, period. <laughs> I'm Dr. Jerry Fishkin, and I'm so glad you were able to tune into my show today. I, you can tell I'm loaded with emotion. It's, it's been a profound show. I want you to be able to follow me on Facebook, Twitter. You can contact me at my website or contact me through my email at Dr. Jerry. That's Dr. Jerry with a G. Dr. Jerry at drgeraldfishkin.com. I'm Dr. Jerry Fishkin wishing you love, hope, and all my compassion and best. Thanks for joining me.